passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the first episode of Cruel Summer, uh, a new show here on postwrestling.com dedicated to looking back at each and every G1 Climax tournament finals from the year 1991 to 2018. Uh, My name is H. Park. Uh, I'm going to be hosting this particular show with a cast of rotating guest hosts, some people, listeners might be familiar with, and some new voices. Uh, I'm excited to talk with each and every one of them uh, on this series. Um, and for this episode, the first episode of the show of the series, uh, I thought who would be the most appropriate guest, but the person I talk to each and every month with on uh, Post Perez, Mr. John Pollock. John, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, WH. I'm I'm honored that in the the WH Park G1 Tumblr, I drew number one. Uh, so, I mean, I know your ideal guest. I know you tried to get uh, Masahiro Chono to come on for the first one, but uh, I- I'm hopeful that I can at least fill those shoes and chat with you about the start of the show that I'm very excited to listen to uh, as you go through all of these shows. Yeah, well, I try to get Chono, but he's too busy selling his Arstris uh, <laughs> brand throughout Japan and maybe in Germany as well. Uh, I, I try to contact Tenzon, but he's really busy. He's also doing like, you know, he's got to do his rehab for his poor ankle and stuff. So I had to settle for, for you. But listen, you're you're not my last choice. You know, you're you're my third choice. There's like <laughs> 10 people. Well, I'm honored. Uh, I'm honored follow, to be there's in the top three. list of like seven people following you. So don't don't feel too bad about that. Um, before we get into the uh, the meat of this episode, I, I want to give some acknowledgement. The inspirations for this show. Uh, first of all, would be uh, Eggshells, which was uh, the companion podcast to Chris Charlton's uh, book about the history of every wrestling event held at the Tokyo Dome. Um, like that, that I thought that was such a great idea that uh, he had. Of course, you can hear that show here at postwrestling.com. And I really like the way Chris formatted the show with having rotating guests. So, so I got that idea from him. Uh, the second inspiration uh, is, was a show called Kings of the Tokyo Dome, hosted by uh, Rich Krejci and Andrew Rich over at our friends, VoicesOfWrestling.com. Uh, thematically, very similar to Eggshells, but with more of a focus on one match, which would be the main event of each and every uh, Wrestle Kingdom, or you know, before the fourth called Wrestle Kingdom, the January fourth. Tokyo Dome shows held by New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, like them, I wanted to focus on a single match. Just the finals of the G1 Climax, not the entire tournament, because I am not insane. 
that would be an impossible undertaking. And finally, uh, the inspiration for the name of the show, Cruel Summer, comes from our friends, uh, Braden Harrington and Davey Portman. They did this excellent review show about the May Young Classic 2 tournament, which they entitled Forever Young, which is the name of a song from the 80s by a group called Alphaville. And I thought, I want to name a show after a pop song from the 80s. What can I do? And I thought, I can look one climax tournament finals uh, during held in August, which is the cruelest month in Japan because it's so hot and humid. So I thought, cruel summer. There, so there you go. If you people are wondering about the, the origin of the name of the show, please lay all the blame at the at the feet of Davy Portman and Braden Harrington, and they do an excellent show here at postwrestling.com called Up Next, which reviews NXT each and every week. You know, I think that that kind of emphasizes. Uh... The slight age gap, WH, because when I hear Cruel Summer, I go to the Ace of Base remix from the mid-90s. Oh, John, like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I listen to you talk about, like, you know, your taste of music and nothing against it, but it does show this big gap in our ages. Like, when you get excited about, you know, like, Aqua and uh, who, whoever, who, who's coming to that show you're, you're going to? Yeah, we've got Aqua. S Club Party, not S Club 7. It is the three of them that are reuniting. The Venga Boys, Right Said Fred. Were you ever uh, a Right Said Fred follower, uh, WH? I just know the one song where they're too sexy. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone can name more than one song from Right Said Fred, but that is the lineup. Uh, and Prozac, of course. Prozac, underrated. You know, I got to say, I'm not familiar with any of them besides Aqua and uh, S Club Seven. I, I actually quite enjoyed uh, the S Club Seven TV show when it was on. Like I think much music. You know, <laughs> it's the funniest thing that it's. I don't know anyone my age uh, that I'm friends with that did not watch that show. I, I I have to imagine just about every Canadian in the year 2000 at least sampled that show at least once on Much Music. You know what my other favorite show around that time was? Was uh, Breaker High. Did you ever watch that, John? I never got into Breaker High, but that was a very popular show. And that's where Ryan Gosling got his start. In. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty I cool. mean, if, if nothing else, Canadian scripted television is a launching pad. Uh, whether you are Drake, uh, I mean, that is that is the springboard to worldwide celebrity is Canadian scripted television. It is true. Like, uh, was that one? I think the, the person who played Lana Lang on Smallville – Kristen, some, I forget her name. She got her start in the show set in, like, I think, Vancouver. I think Grace Park from Battlestar Galactica got her start there. Yeah, Canadian scripted television just launches so many acting and apparently music careers as well in, in worldwide entertainment. So there you go. Um, but instead, let's let's not, you know, go off too, too far on a tangent. Uh, let's no, this get is the into- best start. No, no, none of your – with all due respect to – all the G1 shows coming up. I don't think anyone is going to cover Breaker High, Venga Boys, Prozac, and Bananarama uh, as they tee up whatever year's G1 they are discussing. Yeah, they, they might try, but they won't be successful at it. Let's just say that. But let's get back into the G1 Climax. Uh, before we get into the match that we're going to talk about, the finals of the 1991 tournament, uh, I want to go into a little bit of history about the G1 Climax. Uh, so it had its roots in previous New Japan tournaments, uh, starting from 1974, uh, where it was originally called the World League, which ran from 1974 to 1977. And this particular tournament was based on the old 
World Big League Tournament, uh, which was a holdover from the uh, Japanese Wrestling Association, where Antonio Noki came from, along with Giant Baba, before they uh, formed their respective companies, New Japan Pro Wrestling and All Japan Pro Wrestling. And then it morphed into something called the MSG League, John, which stands for Madison Square Garden. And do you know how many tournaments of this name were held in Madison Square Garden, John? Uh, I'm going to imagine it rhymes with Nero. Yes. There were no shows of this <laughs> tournament ever held in Madison Square Garden. Uh, I can only presume that the name came from the fact that a lot of the, the foreign talents that wrestled in these tournaments came from the then-known WWWF, uh, which, of course, their home arena was Madison Square Gardens. And this included people like, I think, Bob Backlund, uh, uh, whoever else was, I think maybe some the Samoans maybe were in this tournament. Uh, I, I didn't go deep into who participated in these, but basically a lot of the talent. Oh, Nikolai Volkov was in one of them. I, I know that for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of those talents uh, would come to Japan, New Japan because uh, there was a working agreement with the Noki and the McMahon family at that time. And then it morphed into uh, the International Wrestling Grand Prix, the IWGP League. Uh, in from 1983 until 1988, which is, of course, where they get the names for their their title belts, uh, excluding the Never Championship and the Never Six-Man Tag Team Championship. And then uh, it turned into the World Cup tournament for one year in 1989. And then uh, 1990, there was no tournament. And then finally, they they started the G1 Climax in 1991. Yeah, did FIFA get on them in 1989? Was that our one-and-done World Cup? Maybe, maybe FIFA said, hey, what the fuck are you doing calling it the World Cup tournament? But uh, not to be confused with best in the world tournament that the WWE held uh, like uh, recently. So, um, but yeah, so we have the G1 starting in 1991. Uh, Let's talk a bit about the G1 Climax. Uh, The winner of the tournament, assuming they are not already the champion at this time, uh, has has traditionally earned a shot at the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Uh, since 2012, the winner has earned a quote-unquote Tokyo Dome IWGP Heavyweight Championship Challenge Rights Certificate. That's a that's a that's a big title for a challenge, you know, just for for a piece of paper, John. There's not enough certificates that are given out in wrestling. I mean, we get we get checks, we get uh, title shots, we get title opportunities in the WWE, but not enough certificates. Like just a you know, here is a certified number one contendership. This is what fighters in the UFC should be clamoring for when they believe that they're owed a title fight. They need to get it a certificate signed by Dana White and not just his word, and then they don't end up getting their title fight. Exactly. And this is a shoot, by the way. That They actually have a piece of paper that has, like, this so-and-so is challenging for the, you know, IWGP title at the main event of the Tokyo Dome. Uh, so, yeah, of course, the certificate is a contract for a title shot at... Uh, Russell Kingdom, which is, of course, New Japan Pro Wrestling's biggest event of the year, uh, held annually on January 4th. Uh, much like WB's Money in the Bank contract, the certificate is kept in a beautiful briefcase uh, that the wrestler then has to carry around with them for the entirety of, you know, between the period between the, the end of the G1 Climax and Tokyo Dome. Uh, and they have to defend that certificate until the end of the year. Uh, since its inception, this particular idea, the contract has never changed hands in, in, in a challenge uh, challenge title match, I suppose you could call it. But I feel within the next three years, 
they're going to do, they're going to pull a trigger on that idea and someone's going to win that certificate from the winner of the G1 Climax, John. Yeah, I think that if, if it's the right scenario, uh, you never say never, but I, I, I also kind of like the idea that the G1 winner, that is your person you, you go through. Um, I, I think that you've seen it over the last decade that the combination of the brand split in the WWE where you have the two challenges for the title and then years where the Rumble winner ends up losing the spot. I think it kind of waters down what was such an easy concept in the Rumble. So I would just be cautious when looking at something that they have built up with so much uh, value to its fan base in the G1. But, you know, the, the right circumstance, you could certainly pull it off. I think they have to do it at least once because just to add some like drama to subsequent challenges for that certificate. So I think it's, I think it's going to happen. And, but I, I have faith that like ghetto, whoever the booker might be in the future will, will you know, be judicious about when they, you know, let, when the, when the person who wins the G1 climax loses that certificate in the future, um, continuing on with some more history in 2015, the term, the tournament format was changed with new Japan, reducing the number of G1 climax, Climax matches per show, uh, giving you know the wrestlers more time to rest between matches. Uh, but this increased the tournament's length to about four weeks, which is the format we see right now. Uh, in 2016, Kenny Omega became the first non-Japanese wrestler to win the tournament. Um, unlike uh, the New Japan Cup, which is uh, New Japan's other big tournament of the year, the G1 Climax features the then reigning IWGP Heavyweight Champion as as one of the participants, uh, with the exception of the years 1992, 2001, 2004, and 2008, when then-champions Riki Choshu in 92, Kazuyuki Fujita in 2001 and 2004, and Kishimuro in 2008, respectively, did not compete in the tournament. Uh, often being labeled as a favorite, the current IWGP champions uh, have reached the finals five times, the first one being in 1995 with Muto, uh, he would repeat this feat again in 1999. Uh, other reigning champions to reach the finals include Kensuke Sasaki in 2000, Fujita in 2005, and Yuji Nagata in 2007. Uh, Muto and Sasaki are the only two wrestlers to have won the G1 Climax while holding the IWGP title. Uh, Masahiro Chono, with his record five wins, holds the record for the most tournament G1 Climax wins, and Hiroyoshi Tenzan has taken part in the G1 Climax. John, guess how many times he's been in the G1 Climax? Um, the number of times he has been in the G1 Climax, I will guess uh, eight. No. Uh, he has been in the G1 Climax a record 21 times. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I missed the name, so that was a, a pure guess, and I didn't even realize who we were talking about, so I, I take the L on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, shit, who did WH just ask me about? I'm just going to take a, a stab in the dark here. Did you think I was talking about Tanahashi? Uh, I I honestly had no nobody actually in mind. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, Tenzon. Tenzon. Tenzon is the person we were talking about. So, way Tenzon, off. Tenzon, 21 times, which really explains the, the, you know, the, his current you know, physical condition, if you think about it. You know, like, that's, that's a lot. And that, that tournament really ages you, I think, as a wrestler. Sure. And I think it, it speaks volumes to the fact that they took him out of the G1 and realizing, like, I, I think he would have had a 
you know, token spot in the G1 as long as he wanted to, it to, and it tells you where they got Terra. This is just too much on your body to go this month and do all these singles matches that I, I was glad when they made that call, as opposed to Yuji Nagata that, you know, yes, he's he's getting up there, but I feel he can still do the G1 at a, at a pretty high level. Um, so, And he wants to, if, like, if we look at, like, uh, one of his peers in another company, Jun Akiyama, Akiyama, like, pretty much has recused himself from participating in, in you know, Champions Carnival's he only participates if he has to, like if someone, you know, gets injured and he has to fill in for them. So he he's not listed right now to be in the Champions Carnival in 2019. But uh, I think one of the participants, Kenko Mishimo, is injured, so he might have to go in there. But with Nagata, he wants to still do these things. It's just like for some reason, New Japan says we don't want you in there. It, it's it's a bit of a weird, I think, like stance that they take regarding kind of like the people of Tenzan Nagata's Kojima's generation that, you know, like I, I feel like Kojima may or may not get into the 2019 tournament. So we'll, we'll see if that, if that's the case, then there's none of the so-called new Japan dads are going to be in the, the G1 climax. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. I, uh, I think but, Kojima's probably out this year. I would say Suzuki is going to be that veteran presence in the G1, but I, I think Kojima's at the point now where, I think you have to look at it. Yes, there is the sentimentality of Kojima uh, to to a portion of the audience and that link to the past, but it's also taking a spot that I mean, there's there's no shortage of guys that can assume that spot. That you, it's it's a lot to put on these guys to be going that as you said, like changing the format now, where it's a month, it's a month of travel of putting on the, these matches, and the bar is that much higher now that these guys have to go out and have these unbelievable matches like it's a tremendous amount of pressure that i i think you you are gonna see guys have a smaller window of i don't think we're gonna see too many guys who are having their first g1 over this period be here in 20 years like tenzon no i i doubt it as well okay so that being said let's go to 1991 g1 climax tournament file finals uh this was held. Uh, this tournament in general was held from August seventh to August eleventh, which is, you know, to me, it, thinking about like we're talking about like it's a four week tournament now. Like that's that's just staggering that it, it encompasses basically a week when it first started. Uh, it was an eight wrestler tournament of two four man blocks. Uh, the participants in this year's tournament were in the A block: Keiji Muto, Tatsumi Fujinami, Scott Norton, and Big. Van Vader. In the B block, we had Masahiro Chono, Shinya Hashimoto, Bam Bam Bigelow, and uh, Riki Choshu. Uh, and so the, par- the, the participants in the finals were Muto and Chono. And for their pass to the finals were, uh, for Muto, he beat Fujinami and Vader and lost to Scott Norton on his way to the finals. Uh, Chono beat Choshu and Bigelow and drew with Shinya Hashimoto, uh, who he then subsequently had to fight again in a B-block decision match. And, of course, he, he defeated Hashimoto in that match. And then, yeah, Muto and Chono would face off on August 11th at Ryogoku Kokugikan, a.k.a. Sumo Hall, to determine the first G1 Climax uh, winner. So let's now talk about the match itself. Uh, I I had not seen this match maybe in 20 years, John. Uh, when was the last time you had watched this, if ever? 
Um, I, I've watched the match a handful of times. The last time I did actually was last summer before the G1 because on New Japan World, they put all of the, the G1 finals up. And I went through a few of them, and this was one that I did watch last summer. So it was somewhat fresh in my memory. But I'd say I've, I've watched it maybe three to four times. Yeah, I mean, this this is the first time I've watched it since I first watched it maybe in, I don't know, 90, 95 when I got a tape of, that had this match on it. But let, let's talk do, about Do you go that. back and watch a, a lot of stuff on New Japan World, or is it mainly – because I have a hard enough time keeping up with the current stuff. Like, it's rare to just go back and – watch something just for pure leisure but do you do you ever find yourself going into the archives if i get like you know like get on a kick for watching a certain wrestler's matches yeah. i'll go back i i feel i'm probably going to do a lot for jisha thunder liger since he announced his right retirement but the last person i went back to try and find like as many matches as i could on new japan world was was dynamite kid actually mm-hmm. so i wanted to see what was available and i watched some of his matches from you know, back when he was such a huge star in Japan for wrestling. Sadly, it's when someone dies that you typically do go back and watch a lot of their of their history. Um, you know, and sometimes it's just, uh, yeah, that's just the circumstances when there's a big focus on somebody you want to go back. And I, I think that Liger, yeah, he's certainly going to have that impact uh, leading up to this retirement of people uh, r- truly appreciating his career. Because I think if you are a New Japan fan of this kind of New Japan world era. I, I don't know if you fully grasp just what an enormous figure uh, Jushin Liger has been and what a constant he has been. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, we can talk about it on a future edition of Post yeah. Perez, but uh, Jushin Thunder Liger, and he, he's going to be, you know, at least mentioned in upcoming shows because he he has participated in the, in the G1 Climax. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about Masahiro Chono versus Keiji Muto. Uh, from August 11th at Sumo Hall. Um, so the match starts off, and immediately, John, I noticed there's a huge buzz for this match. The Enormous. first ever you know, G1 Climax. Uh, Mudo is at this point, uh, he's wearing his uh, kind of pinkish red trunks and white boots. Uh, he's, I think this is when he's using the nickname Space Lone Wolf, which I think is way cooler than Naito's uh, Stardust Genius uh, nickname. And, and and Chono hasn't adopted his kind of like, you know, like German biker uh, kind of look. He's still wearing his kind of like white capri pants with the green trim. He's still kind of doing that. I think he was like Luthez's uh, protege. I think at least in WCW, they would really harp on that he was trained by Luthez. Luthez taught him the STF uh, submission hold, things like that. But this is kind of like both of their these guys prime, you know, like they're, they're, they're emerging stars in New Japan. They, they, you know, Mudo's a big, big star in NWA, WCW as the great Muda. Chono has been, you know, big, big star. He's really developing at the top is still like people like Ricky Choshu and Tatsumi Fujinami in the minute and scene. But these guys, along with Shinya Hashimoto are just bubbling underneath. And this tournament, we got to say like, you know, was designed, really, to get these three guys, the three Musketeers, over as main eventers. And so we got two of them in the main event. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to like – uh, I, I, I like to do this with Wei when we go back to some of these. Uh, can we play the age game? And I'll, I'll throw out Mudo, Chono, and let's add Hashimoto to the mix. Do you want to guess what their ages were on this date in 1991? Uh, I'm going to say they're all in their late – 
20s to early 30s. I'm going to say Mudo is 29. Very close. Mudo was 28. And he looks it here. I I mean, Mudo looks... I mean, my God. What a... I, I, I... I feel if you put them back to back, you would not guess this is the same individual. Like the, it's been a physical transformation for Keiji Muto since 1991. Uh, definitely, uh, Chono. I'm gonna say 30. He was 27. He was actually a year younger than Muto. He's younger than he just looks older with that mustache. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, Hashimoto. He, has, he, has, he hasn't looked. He doesn't. He doesn't really Ch- look that much different. Chono. Chono has aged pretty gracefully, I'd say. Yeah. Hashimoto, considered. Uh, Hashimoto, uh, like I'm going to say 28. He was 26. He was the youngest of the three, but all within yeah. a year of each other, 26, 27, 28. Yeah. And that, you know, we got to say that that's one of the greatest, like, you know, eras of like, uh, or dojo classes that came out of that, that system. Like those three plus. And I Liger. Think, and Liger. I think Hiroshi Hase came from there and just ton of people it's amazing like we talk about the current crop of young lions like i don't know if you can beat the the three musketeer class and like everyone who kind of was training with them at the same time but yeah let's let's talk about this match it um we have uh them starting off with you know just doing a lot of uh you know like there's a big chono champ by the way so i think chono is really the, the the most popular wrestler in new japan pro wrestling at this time uh you see hashimoto at ringside He's not participating in the match, but it's very important to show like his connection with both of both Muto and Chono. Uh, so yeah, the match starts with both locking up. Uh, Muto gets a headlock. Chono turns it into a head scissors, etc. A lot of back and forth, um, and they're working the ground a lot. Uh, Muto escapes a short arm scissors to get uh, a breather outside, and then he comes back in. And uh, you know, it's it's really interesting because like you see both these guys. Later on in, in their careers, they're, they're, you know, they get bogged down, I feel, by like their kind of signature moves like the dragon screw leg whip from Mudo and with uh, Chono, his Yakuza kicks. But these guys really in this, at this period of time really showing what really great technical wrestlers that they are. And then, you know, like and, you know, then we get the first, you know, striking exchange. Chono does it with a, with a punch and Mudo answers with uh, his spinning savat kick, which is just a beautiful thing to watch and i always love seeing when he did this both as himself and as the great muda yeah i i thought that um you know that that kick he just he just rocks muda with that and yeah as you mentioned kind of like the seeing that that technical side of muda like we see like this beautiful like modern day cattle mutilation here with this great looking bridge um and a lot of focus on on muda's neck in here later we got the uh the pile drivers from Chono and like you said it off the top, like the audience is electric at the start of this and they do not let up. This is a 30 minute match. And this audience, like there is, you know, sometimes it's like you always hear the stereotype that, Oh, they're so quiet because they're observing. It's like, there's, there's plenty of examples where that is not the case. And this is a a perfect one. Yeah. One thing I want to mention at this point is the ref of this match is Tiger Hattori, who, you know, before Red Shoes Uno came in was was the number one, you know, the top ref in the company and really one of the premier refs in, in the world at this point. Like he, him and like for me, Kyo Iwata at the same time were like just incredible referees, just like just 
masters of like you know pace helping pace the match and not drawing attention to themselves and just adding drama to each and every match that they're in um yeah you know we talk about you know chono's you know signature strike is the yakuza kick which you know when he was wrestling in wcw they'd always refer to as the mafia kick so Mm -hmm. john i gotta ask you do you think they call it something else if he's wrestling in like say mexico do they call it the cartel kick (laughs) i was gonna say the cartel kick yeah the um oh i don't know the uh I don't know the all, all the different variations that they would have, yeah. But uh, hey, it was WCW, the the authors of the international object. So I mean, they had to, I guess, personalize. What what would WWE call it? Uh, the uh, the the uh, struggling with demons kick. I mean, they that that's their their drug addiction analogy they use. It's never drugs; it's demons. Um, well, no, but like Chono's was you know Chono's thing wasn't having a drug addiction his thing was always like he was uh, tied in with organized crime so yeah i know i'm just trying to think of what what the how the wwe would uh, address organized crime we, we've never had like a like a mob group in, in the wwe have we no not overtly i i think they you know they, they like kind of like hinted at things like with maybe the you know the, the fbi you know uh, or or crime time maybe but i don't think they've ever overtly said this these guys are part of the mafia or these guys are members of a, of a drug cartel. <laughs> I think in this day and age, you're not going to see that happen. But um, the other interesting thing that I kept picking up on the commentary, the Japanese commentary, is that they kept referring to Mudo as a super heel. He's, he's a super heel, not a hero, a heel. He's a super heel. Like, but I, I didn't see anything in this match that would indicate that he was being a heel. So I, I'm not sure what they were talking about. So uh, I'm not sure what he was doing in the year that made him a super heel. Maybe they were they were the watching pile drivers. Matches. Maybe maybe the pile drivers were considered uh, underhanded in a sportsmanlike contest. Maybe they thought he was still uh, affiliated with Terry Funk and uh, Gary Hart in the JTEX Corporation, John. <laughs> and they weren't they weren't uh, updated as to like his current alignment. If he brought out a branding iron to win the first ever G one, that would have been quite the statement by uh, Booker Ricky Choshu. Yeah, or trying to choke Chono out with a plastic bag over his head. That, that, oh, that, that's true. And then the network would have to get him to apologize. Uh, so, yeah, let let you know, like, so Chono's Yakuza kicks are, like, rocking uh, uh, Mudo. And one of them sends him out to the apron. And then he kicks him, Yakuza kicks him to the guardrail outside. And then, you know, Chono, this is amazing. You know, like, I'm so used to, like, you know, Team 2000, NWO Chono. But Chono follows this move up like kicking Mudo out to the guardrails with a tope suicida john and yeah. it's beautiful it's one of the most beautiful ones i've ever seen it's up there with misahara masawa's tope suicida just great stuff uh chono then hits him with the flying uh hammer from the top rope onto the floor amazing uh like this guy was in the prime of his life like like this is way before i think the the uh Pile driver from Steve Austin, like kind of like really curtailed his ability to do like a lot of these moves later on. Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote in my notes, Chono was a fucking beast in '91, John. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, if you were a fan of of Chono, kind of post NWO Team 2000, I mean, he he got away so much on just his presence and that charisma, but this was. Um, Totally different style from Chono in this match. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I don't think he really gets um, a lot of praise for, like, 
the the in-ring stuff like it's a much more conservative style that was kind of born out of necessity when you mentioned you know the the Austin injury he sustained and you know uh, allowing himself to go into the 2000s I I don't know uh, what his physical state would have been had he not had that injury and continued at this it probably would have been another significant injury that he that he had but I think uh, among the great matches of Chono's history this one has to be on that short list yeah for sure uh so getting back to the match, Shono using, like you said before, he was using quite a few pile drivers, and this is to weaken Muno's neck to set up for his STF uh, finishing hold. Um, yeah, and uh, at one point, Shono tries to pile drive Muno on the outside, but ends up getting back body dropped by Muno, and then Muno grabs Shono and he takes him out to, into the crowd of uh, Sumo Hall, and he gives him a pile driver as a big. Fuck you, Chono. I'm trying to ruin my neck. I'm gonna fuck up your neck. And he did it on the concrete, John. Very vicious. This is where the super heel comes out in uh in Kijimuro. Uh, Kijimuro then throws him back into the ring and follows up with a missile drop kick from the top. And again, like you know, like considering what we get from Mudo, like from the 2000s, from when he joins All Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, it's amazing to see him like just be able to do all these top rope moves like and not worry about the state of his knees and really he's doing it with a full head of hair as well it's it's quite amazing john yeah the the pile driver spot was great i thought the reversal from mudo and then turning the tables onto chono and again the audience is just there's rabid for this um this wasn't a case where you always brawled into the crowd like this, and it was just the one spot. It wasn't overdone. They didn't spend you know forever out there and do all the the countout teases. It was just this one big spot, and I think it just it just grew the audience that much more. I think they realized this was something special, and that this tournament this would mean a lot for the winner. Yeah, and it's at this point that they start the closing stretch of the match with Mudo going for pins using a backdrop suplex, a German suplex with a bridge, a suplex, which, uh, you know, tied Chono up in the rope. So they couldn't count it. Uh, then Mudo snaps him over and goes for the first, uh, moonsault of the evening, which is incredible. Like, you know, he used to be pretty, you know, he used to kind of really go spammy with his moonsaults later in his career, but here he's, he's reserving them and, and just keeping them special. Uh, the and funny thing just, about this, oh, sorry to interrupt, sorry. but just one of my favorite parts of this match is when he misses the moonsault and, you know, so typically you always see the guy, he just, he just gets up and he's selling the moonsault. He just lay there motionless for like 30 seconds. And I thought it was so effective. And you never see that when a guy misses a moonsault, it's just, boom, we're just moving to the next spot. And instead he's like, he's selling like here, this is. This is the high-risk portion of this move is that if you miss, man, the wind is knocked out of you. And he was just laying there like he's dead. And I just thought it was a great uh, moment in the match. It's like things like this just make you realize like how special these moves when they you know kind of first emerge. And I feel there's a lot of like, you know, watering down of big moves because like nowadays we have to, you know, kick out of moves and like not sell moves and or not sell them to the degree that they used to even like, you know, like in 91, which is, you know, kind of, which is a different era from like the eighties or the seventies for sure. But I, I think ten, something, things like that tend to be a lost art nowadays. But one, one thing I want to go back is like when Mudo's setting up for the moonsault, he, he snaps it into the corner, like onto uh, Chono's, Chono's back. And then he goes 
to go to the top rope, but he goes to the opposite corner, like the one further away from Chano. And then he quickly realizes, oh, shit, that's too far. And then he goes, <laughs> yes, the right yes. Corner, which I thought was hilarious. Um, let's see, where am I here? Uh, yeah, he misses the moonsault. Uh, and then you know Chono sells it for a while. Then comes back. And Chono comes back with the with the yakuza kick, and then he puts on the STF. And at this point, the crowd is is going crazy. They're they're just like, you know, they're, they can't believe what they're seeing. Uh, Mudo reaches the ropes, gets the rope break. Uh, Chono hits a top rope flying shoulder block and gets Mudo in the Cobra Twist, uh, a kind of you know tribute homage to their you know their hero, their idol at this point, Antonio Inoki. Uh, and yeah, Mudo fights his way out of that move by getting to the ropes, and he gives Chono a backdrop suplex for a two count. Uh, Mudo reverses a suplex with his own uh, Cobra Twist abdominal stretch hold. So he's like saying, "Hey, Inoki's probably watching this. I gotta, I gotta curry favor with him. I'm his favorite, not you, Chono. Fuck you. So I'm gonna put you in the Cobra Twist. Uh, this obviously is not the finish of the match. Uh, and then I gotta, I want to." point out at this point in the match this is my favorite po- point of the match john mudo goes to the top rope and he's probably going to do something like you know his missile drop kick he jumps and chono is tries to uh counter the move by giving him a drop kick like you know the move where someone does a top rope move and the guy on the ground jumps up to drop kick the person right. so chono tries this but in midair mudo leapfrogs over him i i couldn't believe it this is 1991 everyone this is not Ray Phoenix, this is not Will Ospreay. This is not Ricochet. This is Keishi Muto, a heavyweight, leapfrogging in midair to block, to like counter drop kick to him, which is just amazing, John. Yeah, it was it was spectacular this uh this sequence. I felt like the final this is a really solid match and it's the final five minutes are just I, I thought this was paced so well and just like perfect length of time and Everything peaked, and the final, the final five minutes of this, I think, are just the 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 with pun absolutely intended, the climax. Oh yeah, and so I like we're getting we're getting to the climax. So you know, Mudo goes for another missile drop kick, and this time uh, Chono hits with the the counter drop kick. Mudo cannot do two leapfrogs in midair in one match, John. Uh, there's a failed. Frankensteiner attempt by Mudo. Chono Yakuza kicks him. Chono, Mudo uh, rebounds with flying forearm. This, this is just an amazing match so far. Mudo tries to tries a moonsault and and Chono counter counters with his getting his knees up, and then Chono pins him with a folding powerbomb, not with the STF. And at this point, he wins the match. And this is one of the greatest scenes in professional wrestling history. The fans yeah. grab the cushions and they start throwing them into uh into the ring to show their respect and appreciation for this match much safer than what an ecw audience would do in around the same time period john yeah i mean they really should have just been putting pillows on the seats at the ecw arena and maybe it would have been a a safer uh environment i i've talked about it before but that to me uh they did this at a ring of honor show uh it was wrestlemania weekend in 2006 and it was this uh street fight between colt cabana and homicide and the chairs started getting thrown and this dude who's like just a few feet from me takes this metal chair and hurls it and he hits some fan in the back of the head because it doesn't clear the barricade. I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And just seeing it in person, like frightening, just frightening. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is you can't, 
do that anymore. They don't provide you uh, with cushions, as far as I can recall. No, I've been to Simo Hall to sit in the the box area where they where they would normally provide cushions. They they don't provide them for wrestling shows anymore. I don't think it's because of this particular match. I think it has to do with I think where Vader like power bombed. <laughs> Didn't, didn't they start lighting them on fire? Like, wasn't there an issue like with with those, with like lighting the the pillows on fire? I don't I don't recall. Maybe maybe, maybe that was that stuff. But it it did do it had to do with with um the Vader match. Yeah, yeah, that, that might have been with, with Anoki, like, I believe. Like where he beats Anoki in like four minutes. The first match, I think, with uh, you know uh, beat Takeshi in Vader's corner. Uh, but yeah, they, you can't do this anymore. They don't they don't provide. Uh, the pillows anymore, unfortunately. Uh, so yeah, Masahiro Chono is the first ever G1 Climax winner. Uh, you know, the first of many that we mentioned before. And you know, Mudo, you know, comes up to him, congratulates him. They hug. Uh, Hashimoto is in the ring as well, and there's a big Chono chant. And then he gets the G1 Climax trophies, and he gets a giant check, John, for five million yen. That's a nice Oof. amount of money there. Not, not I love the gimmick. I love the giant check gimmick, John. You know, like I wish they did this more in wrestling around the world. You just get can you imagine like Triple H wins WrestleMania and he gets a check for fifty million dollars? Yeah. I'm just wondering if we're if the, the the modern era will get instead of the uh the Cobra twist exchanges from both trying to curry favor with Anoki, are we gonna get like dueling pedigrees in like ten years from I don't know, Velveteen Dream and Matt Riddle. Maybe, maybe. And then they're going to get a check for $50 million, John. No, they'll get a lifetime subscription to the WWE Network. Uh, that's In their minds, it's, 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 it's worth the same thing, isn't it? Uh, and then, yeah, Chono uh, closes out the show, and he does the Antonio Noki Ichi Ni Santa with all the, the fans in attendance. And, yeah, and just, wow. An incredible match, um, and an incredible really- post match. I think like the closing scene is so memorable. With you know, there you have Chono Mudo Hashimoto as like these are the guys for the '90s. Like this is making a very clear, definitive statement of what this tournament was designed for. It was really setting the table for these three guys moving forward. And it was it's just an incredible, incredible scene at the end from the pillows being thrown in, following a fantastic match. Like, I, I think that, you know, if you're tracing the G1 lineage to, to this specific one, even though you did have the tournaments that predated it, I mean, this this really does set the set the bar for years to come of what the G1 would mean for New Japan on its calendar. Yeah, it's just the, the perfect launch to what I consider my favorite event on, on the New Japan calendar for the year. Uh, so and just now I want to just quickly mention like, uh, you know, Chono would get a title shot and he would cash in his uh, title shot at uh, an event called Tokyo three days, three days, battle day three at the Nippon Budokan on November 5th, 1991 against Tatsumi Fujinami. Uh, Chono did not win the title in this match. And this is not, this is not the point where they, they, they think of like, you know, the dome as the end all, as kind of like, you know, the, the, the road from the G1 Climax to um, the Wrestle Kingdom, January 4th Tokyo Dome shows isn't really uh, strongly connected at this point. So, yeah, but Chono did get his title shot, did not win. So we're not going to see 
kind of like this idea of G1 Climax winner, you know, IWGP champion, like, you know, direct correlation for a, a while at, at, from this point. So. Yeah, I felt that, um, you know, at the end of this, you certainly have so many different directions uh, to go in, spearheaded by Chono's victory as well. But I thought that this was, you know, certainly, uh, I think it goes without saying, kind of uh, Ricky Choshu as well, his mindset at this time. Like, he's the one crafting this tournament together, and he's he's losing to, you know, Bigelow, Chono, Hashimoto. Uh, this was really like a statement of just creating your your younger guys and just not not going with that philosophy that some will have that it takes x amount of years to create new stars like when you are when you see the guy or guys in this matter you just go all the way with them and make a strong statement to your audience that these are the guys and we'll see if, if it works or not but um that's that's one of the the pillars that I really like about the new Japan style is that when they do choose their guy, there's kind of, there's no gray area. It's just, they've put all their resources and, and push them forward. Yeah, definitely. Like, like you see it from the start of the, of the G1 climax and it's continued on up until like 2018. Uh, so yeah, John, like, shall we do some trivia? I, I'm inspired by what you do on uh, review, review away. And I, I came up with some trivia for you. Okay. Uh, shall we go through? So, uh, August 10th in, on the top 100 billboard, what was the number one song, John? Yeah, this is, this is a, a worldwide, this is not specific to Japan. Uh, this is, this is Amer uh, American top, uh, okay. billboard, top 100. Oh, all these man. are American. All these are in America. I'm going to guess something by new kids on the block. No, it is everything I do. I do it for you by our fellow Canadian, Brian, Adams. Brian Adams. Oh wow! Not not crush, not crush. No, the other <laughs> Brian, Brian Adams, Adams. The, the singer, yes. the more successful Brian Adams. Um, oh, wow! I, I, I this should be a question for Way, but I'm just gonna ask you. In August 1991, saw the release of the number one selling comic of all time, John. Do you know what it is? Um, Spider-Man issue 45. No, it. Well, it's a good guess. It's uh, X-Men Volume Two, number one by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee, which I have like about four copies in my basement back in Toronto. Uh, August 11th, 1991. What was the number one movie at the box office in America, John? Uh, um, okay, let's, let's think about this. August 1991, Philadelphia. Uh, no, it's a comedy, though. It's a comedy. Yeah. A comedy. Um, honey, I, honey, honey, I shrunk the kids. Okay, uh, it stars Tiger Blood, John. Oh, okay. Uh, Major League. Uh, close. It, it's Hot Shots with Charlie. Hot Shots. Oh, well, there okay, we go. A uh, couple more. Uh, what famous cartoon debuted on uh, Nick Nickelodeon at this time? In August of 1991 on Nickelodeon. Um, Jesus. Um, I have I have no idea. It was the uh, Ren and Stimpy show. Oh, my God. Wow. I actually watched a bit of Ren and Stimpy. I wasn't like yeah. – I was never a super big cartoon watcher, but I did watch some of that. Wow, that's interesting. 
Yeah, okay, and then let's get into the wrestling part. Uh, okay. Who was the IWGP heavyweight champion at this time, John? Uh, in 91, it was... What Was it Muto at this time? No. I already mentioned this guy. I know you did. Um, I'm drawing a blank now because I know you did say this. <laughs> <laughs> it was Tatsumi Fujinami. Oh, it was Fujinami. Uh, IWGP junior champion? Liger. Uh, Akira Nogami. All right. This is when Nogami had just uh, returned, I believe. Yes. yes. Who is the WWF world champion at this point? In 91, uh, Hogan. Yes, correct. WC jump, WCW world champion? 91. All right, so this is after Flair has left. Now, this is right before Flair is about to debut, actually, like right at that time. So this is when it's all confusing. Is it? Uh, uh, is there's it, a decision match. There's a decision match. Uh, is yeah. this where it went? Did Luger have it? Yes, he beat Barry Windham in the That's decision right. match. Yeah. And then final one, John, who were the WCW United States tagging champions in August of 1991? The Steiner brothers. Close. It was the fabulous three birds of Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. Yes, the uh, the less remembered version of the Freebirds, but Hall of Famers in the WWE nonetheless. Nonetheless, yes. So, yeah, well, you know, with that, uh, we're, we're at the end of episode one of Cruel Summer. And like I said, we're, we're covering from 1991 to 2018. So we have a lot of shows that we're going to come up with. And, yeah, I mean, I hope people like this episode and I hope people like subsequent episodes and maybe John, you can start up a, a feedback uh, thread over at the post wrestling forums and yeah, coming in like, we're going to be having a lot of cool guests. And basically if you want to know the content of each and every show, just go to like any website, maybe the Wikipedia page for the G1 climax. You can see the shows that I'm going to be talking about from now until uh, the, the show covering 2018 and of course you can hear myself and John every month on Post Perez uh, at postwrestling.com Post Perez